Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the third and final part of a three-part series on the United Film Distribution Company and Taurus Entertainment. If you have not done so, please make sure you listen to episodes 58 and 59, the first two parts of this series. When we left our previous episode, United Artists Theaters had merged UFDC with a small Los Angeles-based distribution company called Artist Entertainment Group to form a new company called Taurus Entertainment. Now, when I map out these episodes, I usually do them linearly. If we are covering Taurus Entertainment, like we are doing on this episode, and we are covering the movies Taurus released in 1988 and 1989, like we are on this episode, the first film that I would talk about is whatever the first film they released in 1988 was, which would be Slaughterhouse Rock. But we need to take a small detour, as before we get there, we need to make a stop in Park City, Utah. Most of Taurus Entertainment's first movies were holdovers from United Film Distribution, but the new company wanted to make a big splash for itself, a coming-out party, if you will. And what better place could there be than the United States Film Festival? Never heard of the United States Film Festival? That's probably because in 1991, they changed their name to their current name, the Sundance Film Festival. In 1988, the festival was still the place to discover new films from emerging filmmakers, and one of the movies at the festival that year was Sandy Smolin's comedic drama, Rachel River. The great Pamela Reed stars as Mary, a journalist who returns to her small hometown of Rachel River, Minnesota, to reflect on her life and the choices she made that led her to where she is now, a single mother back home. The movie had much to hang promotions on. It also starred Vivica Lindfors the Swedish-born actress with a 40-year resume who had recently seen a career resurgence thanks to Creepshow, as well as Craig T. Nelson, then currently starring in the hit television show Coach, and acclaimed actor Jelko Ivanek. The screenplay, based on the short stories of Carol Bly, had been written by Judith Guest, whose own novel, Ordinary People, had been adapted into the Best Picture winner of 1980. And at the United States Film Festival, run then at his as it is now by the director of Ordinary People, Robert Redford, Rachel River would pick up two awards. Miss Linfers would win a special grand jury award for her performance, and Paul Elliott would win the award for Best Cinematography. But despite its success at the film festival, bidding for Rachel River wasn't all that strong. The film had had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival the previous September, where, despite some good reviews, the film left town without a deal. It would play a number of other festivals around the world, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Seattle, from Berlin to Belgium and Portugal, and even to Russia, where it was amongst the titles to show at the inaugural Leningrad American Film Festival. Finally, tourists would take on the film before they left Park City. The director was already doing well, having moved on to directing episodes of shows like L.A. Law, thanks to the reception of Rachel River on the festival circuit, And he would end up marrying his movie star, Pamela Reed. The two are still married after 33 years, by the way. But despite picking the film up for distribution in January of 1988, 
It wouldn't be until January 20th, 1989, when Taurus would release the film in four theaters in Minneapolis. But despite being what could be considered a local film, Rachel River would gross but $19,579 from those four theaters in its first seven days of release. Taurus would release the film at one of United Artists' flagship theaters in New York City, the Gemini Twin, on February 17th, and at the AMC Century City 14 in Los Angeles on February 24th. But the film would get lost in the cacophony of promotions for movies nominated for the just-announced 61st Annual Academy Awards. The film would have grossed less than $61,000 when its theatrical run was completed in mid-March of 1989. Today, Miss Reed is best known to audiences as Leslie Nope's mother on Parks and Recreation. Okay, so now we're moving on to Slaughterhouse Rock. Dimitri Logothethis's supernatural horror film features Nicholas Salozzi as Alex, a college student who suffers from regular nightmares about the victims of a serial killer who lived on Alcatraz Island before it was turned into a federal prison. After his friends find him hovering over his bed, Alex, his brother Richard, and some friends head to Alcatraz Island to help Alex face down the ghost of a killer. Assisted by the ghost of a singer, who was murdered on the island by the ghost of the Alcatraz killer, Alex learns how to have his conscience leave his body, where he is able to learn the truth about what happened on the island. Meanwhile, one of the other members of the group becomes possessed by the ghost of the Alcatraz killer, and you only get one guess as to what the ghost does once he gains control of a corporal body. Did you guess, starts killing and raping people again? Of course you did. That's what always happens when an evil ghost of a serial killer takes over someone else's body. Former Playboy playmate Hope Marie Carlton, who had starred in UFDC's Double Exposure the previous year, also stars here, as well as actress, choreographer, and pop singer Tony Basil, who plays the murdered pop star who teaches Alex how to catch the killer and do some killer dance moves whenever the plot kept getting in the way of the story. Production on the $2.5 million film began in and around Los Angeles in March of 1987, and the film would have its first theatrical engagement in Chicago on January 22, 1988. It would, like many a UFDC release, make its way around the country region by region, stopping for a short run in New York City beginning March 23rd, and finishing with a short run in Los Angeles on October 28th, often as the B title at drive-ins with Guy Magar's Retribution. You remember Retribution from our previous episode. Director Magar wasn't happy with how United Film Distribution handled the original release of the film in June of 1987, and he sought out a new distributor to give his movie a more proper release, and he found one in early 1988 in Taurus Entertainment. Whether or not Magar was aware that Taurus was just a rebranded UFDC, we may never know. But Taurus did release the movie into a half a dozen cities, including into 51 theaters and drive-ins in Los Angeles on October 28th, complete with a full-page ad in the Los Angeles Times and months of pre-release promotional support, and with the promise they would release the film into additional theaters if it performed well there would be no additional release waves for Retribution. Oh, sorry. I'm, I bounced around the timelines again. I'll, I'll, I'll try to, not to do that again, but uh, no, no promises. 
Taurus's next film was their first attempt to release what could be considered a mainstream movie. Avery Crounce's The Invisible Kid. Who brought day-glow cockroaches to parents' night? Have you ever had one of those days when you wished you could just disappear? Follow me. You take that stuff and you bury it! Grover Dunn is having one of those days. He's in trouble. Come on, please. I can explain. He's in love. I know. You've got her in here somewhere. And he's about to become... Invisible. The Invisible Kid. Maybe we should experiment with it a little before we make it public. The Invisible Kid. He's made the discovery of the century. And everyone's after it. If they can find him. I lost him. Do you know what he was really trying to invent? A new toilet bowl cleaner. Do. Make more. The Invisible Kid. Now you see him. Now you don't. The Invisible Kid. Jay Underwood from The Boy Who Could Fly stars as Grover Dunn, a nerdy teenager and wannabe scientist who discovers a formula for invisibility and, as you would expect from an 80s movie about a nerdy kid who discovers a formula for invisibility, uses his newfound powers to take revenge against the bullies who've made his life a living hell and to spy on the girls in the locker room shower. Yet, despite being exactly as creepy as that sounds, the film is rated PG because outside of some male objectification, there is nothing objectionable going on. Wallace Langham, still going by Wally Ward, plays Grover's best friend. Future Wilson Phillips singer China Phillips is the object of Grover's affections, and inexplicably, the filmmakers were able to rope in Oscar nominee Karen Black, so memorable in Bob Raffleson's Five Easy Pieces and Robert Altman's Nashville, as Grover's mom. The $1.8 million movie, filmed entirely on location in beautiful Bellflower, California, would open in 55 theaters in and around the New York City metropolitan area on Wednesday, March 30th, in 25 theaters in the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area on Friday, April 8th, and in 22 theaters in the Chicago metro area, but not actually in the Chicago city limits, on August 26th. But how well it may have done at the box office has been lost to time, or at least behind the paywalls at Variety.com. I remember playing the film for a week at one of my theaters in Santa Cruz, and it didn't do very well, because it was pretty bad. Michael Wilmington in the Los Angeles Times would even suggest in his review that running blank leader on the screen would have been an improvement for the ticket holder. Yet, the film does have a small and very devoted following, trading digital copies of third-generation VHS dupes of the movie around online, because it has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray, at least in America. Back in late 1986, the Mattel Toy Company came out with a line of action figures called Brave Star. As part of a coordinated marketing effort with Colorforms, Viewmaster, and another of other tie-ins, 
to help hype up an animated series that would be arriving on TV the following September. Brave Star would be produced by Filmation, a California-based animation company that had also produced He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, She-Ra, Princess of Power, Shazam, The Secret of Isis, and an animated show based on the 1970s live-action series Ghostbusters. Looking for something different, Filmation created the idea for a science fiction western about a 23rd century galactic marshal on a multicultural desert planet called New Texas, trying to keep the peace between different factions who were often at odds with one another. Brave Star would be syndicated to any station that would show it, and 65 episodes were produced. It would begin airing in late September of 1987 and finish its first season in late February 1988. Filmation's plans were to produce a prequel theatrical motion picture that would be able to explore the mythology and origins of the characters and the discovery of a rare ore on New Texas that would bring all the various factions on the show to the same place. And that film would play in the late spring and early summer of 1988 to keep fans of the show happy until the second season would start back up in September. But the show didn't get very high ratings, despite some good critical reviews from television critics. And a number of channels decided not to pick up the show for another season before the first season was completed. So the decision was made that the already completed Brave Star the movie would get a theatrical release beginning March 18th, barely three weeks after the airing of what would end up becoming the final episode of the series. To try and help get the movie into as many theaters as possible, Taurus would allow theater bookers to split book the film, having Bravestar play matinee shows only, leaving room for another movie to play on the same screen in the evenings. And like almost every UFDC and Taurus movie released, the film would meander from town to town, region to region, throughout the summer. It wouldn't open in New York City until it played in 76 theaters the weekend of September 2nd, and in 21 theaters in Los Angeles, on September 17th and 18th for matinees only. But the film would suffer the same fate as the show. Decent reviews, very little viewership. Two months later, Taurus would release the Michael Jacob-directed horror film The Shaman. Now, I don't remember this movie at all. I don't think we ever played a trailer for it or put up a poster for it. And I remember almost every movie I've played or showed trailers for back then. Avind Harum plays the titular shaman who stalks the members of a suburban family as he looks for a prodigy to replace him. There's nobody you've ever heard of in this movie, and I can't even find any theaters to have played this movie outside of a mention of the movie playing in New Jersey, courtesy of Brian Albright's 2012 book Regional Horror Films 1958-1990, A State-by-State -State Guide. But Albright's book doesn't mention when it was released in New Jersey, but most online sources say the film came out in mid-May of 1988. Two movies that we are fairly sure were released in the theaters in May of 1988 were Black Eagle and Mortuary Academy, and both would be released on the same day, May 20th. The first, Black Eagle, was one of 7,000 low-budget movies in the 1980s to either star Shoko Shugi or Jean-Claude Van Damme. 
And although both men made a number of movies for Menachem Golin and Yoram Globus at Canon Films, who we will be tackling someday, this is the only movie in which Koshugi and Van Damme appear in together. In the film, Koshugi plays a martial artist and a special op for the American government, codenamed Black Eagle, who is sent to Malta to retrieve an experimental laser tracking device off a downed F-111 aerial recon plane before the Russians find it. Van Damme plays Andre, the brutal right-hand man of the Russian colonel sent by his government to find the device. And, as you would expect, there is a brutal fight between Andre and, and Black Eagle to end the film. So, who wins the fight? Well, you're just going to have to watch the film to find out. And considering some of the real crap that both Koshugi and Van Damme were involved in during the 80s, Black Eagle isn't actually all that bad. It's just not very good when compared to, you know, a good movie. Written by Paul Bartel, Mortuary Academy would be a reunion of sorts for several members of the Bartel family. Zane Levitt, his assistant in the decade, would produce. Michael Schroeder, who had worked as his first assistant director on Lust in the Dust and the Longshot, would be making his directorial debut. And Bartell himself would appear in the film, a long time his 17-time co-star Mary Warnov, as the operator of a mortuary and academy who must train two bumbling idiot nephews of the mortuary's now-deceased owner, who stand to inherit the mortuary if they can graduate from Mortuary Academy. If the brothers fail, the business will remain with Paul and Mary, who have secrets involving the mortuary they would rather keep secret. And yes, Paul Bartell and Mary Warnov's characters were named Paul and Mary. It's just one of those things Bartell loved to do. Christopher Atkins and Perry Lang play the idiot brothers, Actor-writer Bruce Wagner, who had written the story for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 with Wes Craven, plays one of the other Mortuary Academy students, and Tracy Walter from Repo Man shows up and is exactly what you'd hope and wish he'd be. The humor of Paul Bartell was always an acquired taste, and not a lot of people got it. One person who was a fan of Bartell's was Steven Spielberg, who would hire Bartell to write and direct two episodes of his mid-80s anthology series, Amazing Stories. But even though Secret Cinema and Gershwin's Trunk were two of the better episodes on the show, they would receive some of the lowest ratings for the 45 episodes of the show aired. Both Black Eagle and Mortuary Academy would open in the South on May 20th, and both would quickly disappear from theaters, neither ever opening in Los Angeles or New York City. Mortuary Academy would find a small but loyal cult following when an edited-for-television version frequently aired on the USA Network Up All Night show in the late 80s and early 90s, but it would take more time for fans to catch up with Black Eagle. Now, the funny thing about doing the research for these shows is that you can be reminded about things you knew about then but had forgotten over the years. And while doing the research for this episode, I was reminded of Corsair Pictures. You know how distributors had specialty labels for a certain type of films? Miramax had Dimension Films to handle their horror and sci-fi titles. Columbia has Screen Gems to handle horror and quote-unquote urban titles. Well, I had completely forgotten that Taurus had their own specialty label to handle more prestigious titles. 
Corsair Pictures. And to run Corsair, Torres would turn to filmmaker Frank Perry, the Oscar-nominated director of David and Lisa, whose career had hit the skids in 1981 when his adaptation of Mommy Dearest became an embarrassing bomb. United Artists Theatres, outside of UFDC, had helped to finance Perry's two post-Mommy Dearest movies, 1985's Compromising Positions and 1987's Hello Again, and they would enjoy working with each other enough to form this partnership. The first movie Taurus would release under the Corsair Pictures banner was Bill Kuchery's documentary Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam. Based on an anthology book series, the 84-minute movie would match archival footage of the war in Vietnam with actors reading letters written by American servicemen to their families and friends back home. And the director would get some of Hollywood's biggest actors, including Tom Berenger, Ellen Burstyn, Willem Dafoe, Robert De Niro, Brian Dennehy, Matt Dillon, Robert Downey Jr., Michael J. Fox, Harvey Keitel, Sean Penn, Eric Roberts, Martin Sheen, Kathleen Turner, and Robin Williams to read the letters. Corsair would open the movie in 37 cities across America and Canada, including at the Eastside Cinema in New York City and three theaters in Los Angeles, including the Coronet Theater in Westwood, on September 16th, four months after the documentary had initially aired on PBS. The film would perform decently in theaters, and Corsair, along with the film's original backer, HBO, would donate all the profits from the film to the New York Vietnam Veterans Memorial Commission and the Vietnam Veterans Ensemble Theater. The next Corsair picture would be Miss Firecracker, a comedy, the poster tells us, about a declaration of independence. Based on the play The Miss Firecracker Contest by Crimes of the Heart writer Beth Henley, the film would star regular Henley collaborator Holly Hunter as Carnell, a stubborn young woman from Yazoo City, Mississippi, who enters the town's Miss Firecracker pageant every year in the hopes that she can win and become successful like her cousin Elaine, who won a number of years before. Joining Hunter on her quest for self-discovery is an amazing cast that includes Academy Award winner Mary Steenburgen, future Oscar winner Tim Robbins, Alfrey Woodard, Scott Glenn, Robbins' Bull Durham co-star Trey Wilson, Burt Remsen, Anne Wedgworth, and Amy Wright. Henley would adapt her play to the screen, and Thomas Schlame would direct. You may or may not know him by name, but you've definitely seen some of his work. Schlame also directed the Mike Myers comedy So I Married an Axe Murderer, but he is best known for directing a number of shows with Aaron Sorkin, including 14 episodes of Sports Night, 14 episodes of The West Wing, including the show's pilot episode, and four episodes of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Schlame also directed for Mad About You, Spin City, Friends, Chicago Hope, ER, Parenthood, The Americans, House of Cards, and The Plot Against America. But Miss Firecracker would be his featured directorial debut. Steenburgen was a last-minute replacement for Christine Lottie when Lottie discovered she was pregnant and had to drop out of the production. Lottie had actually replaced Steenburgen in the Jonathan Demme movie Swing Shift in 1983 by Steenburgen's specific request when she discovered she was pregnant, and Lottie, 
repaid the favor. Shlami was okay with Lottie dropping out of the movie, but not because of any bad blood between them. Quite the opposite, in fact, as the two were married, and it was their firstborn that she was carrying. Production would begin on the $4 million film in the actual Yahoo City, Mississippi, on May 31, 1988, and production would last for two months. The production would ironically take the 4th of July off because Shlami would be in nearby Jackson, Mississippi, where Lottie would be in labor with her son Wilson the following day. Dad would spend a couple days with mom and child at the hospital before returning to the set. Lottie and Wilson would shoot cameo appearances for the film before it wrapped. Now, when you have a movie called Miss Firecracker that takes place during the 4th of July, you would naturally schedule the release of the film around that time, right? Right? Not if you're Corsair Pictures. No, you decide after having a benefit premiere in Yazoo City on April 25, 1989, to open the film the last weekend of April. On one screen in New York, three screens in Los Angeles, and two screens in Mississippi. On those first three days, the film would gross $45,000, which was a respectable $7,548 per screen average, second best in the entire nation coming only behind Field of Dreams. It would do a better per screen average than the more publicized Scandal from Miramax Films or the Jim Belushi comedy Canine, both which also opened that weekend. But try as hard as they did, Corsair couldn't get the film to break out. It would play in as many as 211 theaters at its widest point of release, but the film would fizzle out after grossing $1.85 million after three months. And you have to remember, the summer of 1989 was a record-breaking season. Field of Dreams was huge. Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade was huge. Lethal Weapon 2 was huge as was Ghostbusters 2 and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Dead Poet Society. When Harry Met Sally was pretty huge, as was Uncle Buck and Turner and Hooch and Parenthood. The Abyss did fairly well, all things considered. And lots of movies just hung on forever that summer, like Major League and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Pet Cemetery. The only real bombs that summer were Star Trek V and License to Kill, although only one of those films was a piece of crap. In fact, 1989 was the first time the total box office gross for the year eclipsed $4 billion, up nearly 16% from the year before. But most of that went to the big studios with the big releases. The biggest movie that year from any truly independent distributor was Sex, Lies, and Videotape from Miramax. And yes, we will eventually need to talk about Miramax films in the 80s somewhere down the line. I've been purposely avoiding it and will continue to avoid it for as long as possible. But to get back on track, Miss Firecracker probably wouldn't have done a whole lot better had they waited until July to release it, but it probably wouldn't have done much worse. After not having released any movies since Black Eagle and Mortuary Academy in May of 1988, Taurus went on a releasing bender, sending no less than five movies into theaters between March and August of 1989. The first would be Mickey Novelli's horror thriller Heaven Becomes Hell, in which two actors, looking to raise money to make their own action movie, decide to start their own religion. But things don't go according to plan. Oh's nose! What could possibly go wrong with that? I don't know. 
I've never heard of the film myself, but the poster tagline says, When Passion Turns Into Possession, dot, dot, dot. It's probably something about sex and murder. There were a smattering of playdates in the South beginning on March 24th, and it would make its way into the Midwest in late May, but nothing for Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. The second film would be Sam Hurwitz's On the Mate, the first movie, according to the director, to feature a heterosexual character dying of AIDS. That, in and of itself, does not make for a very interesting movie. What makes On the Make interesting, at least as a historical documentation about a specific time and place, is how nonchalant the characters act concerning the disease. The $120,000 movie starts at the end and then work its way back from a certain point of the lead character's life that will lead him to that ending. The film would open in 50 theaters in Atlanta, New Orleans, St. Petersburg, and Tampa on April 14th, but it would not reach New York City or Long Island, where it was filmed, until September 29th. The third Taurus movie of the summer would be, without a doubt, the worst movie Taurus would ever release. Ivana Massetti's Domino. Brigitte Nielsen, recently divorced from Sylvester Stallone, and out to prove her career didn't solely exist because of her proximity to the Italian Stallion, plays the titular Domino a woman in the video industry who has traveled to Rome with a jeweled turtle, making videos for Billie Holiday songs. Domino enjoys having relations with some of her friends, but what she's really looking for is love, which she thinks she may have found when she starts to receive calls from a stranger. Now, there is no doubt or argument to be made about Nielsen being one of the most beautiful women in show business at the time. She was stunning. A six-foot-tall blonde Dane who had recently enhanced her breast, she was a fantasy come to life for many a man, young and old. And she had no qualms about getting nude for the camera. Famed fashion photographers like Helmut Newton and Herb Ritz would regularly shoot her for a wide variety of ads and magazines. And the collaboration between Nielsen and Ritz for the December 1987 issue of Playboy would help the magazine attain sales it hadn't seen in years. But 18 months later, none of that would matter. Nielsen hadn't been seen on a movie screen for two years since her supporting role in Beverly Hills Cop 2, which nobody saw specifically for her, and her divorce from Stallone was ancient history by then. It also didn't help that, even as an artsy Italian softcore skin flick, the damn thing didn't make a lick of sense, which is bizarre as the original screenplay was written by Gerard Brock whose film credits include Polanski's Repulsion, Cul-de-sac, The Fearless Vampire Killers, The Tenant, Tess, and Frantic, as well as Quest for Fire, The Name of the Rose, The Lover, and the two-part Jean de Florette and Manon of the Spring. I know I watched the film after building the print-up, but I do not remember anything about the movie. I can remember so many details about seeing so many films that were older than Domino. I still remember sitting in my best friend's car on Lincoln Street, across the street from the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz, late on a Saturday night, getting stoned with him and another friend just before we went to a midnight show of Buckaroo Banzai, a good five years before Domino was released. And seriously, who remembers a specific incident about getting stoned 37 years later? 
I remember seeing a double feature of Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip and the Canadian horror film Humongous at the now demolished Long Beach Theater at Ocean and Long Beach Boulevard in my hometown and my dad pulling me out of the theater a half hour into the second feature Humongous because it was extremely stupid. And that was seven years before Domino. I remember so many things about going to see thousands of movies. But this movie, Domino, was so bad, my mind has completely cleared it from my memory banks. Domino would get released in New York City on May 5th and in Los Angeles on May 12th, but tourists wouldn't even spring for any newspaper ads in either the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times to support it. The film is so damn bad that by the time it arrived in the Bay Area, my Dollar House Theater would be the only theater in all of San Jose to open the movie first run. And even then, I think we sold 12 tickets the entire week. It was one of the few times I was told I had to play a specific movie. And I would pair it with another alleged Bridget Nielsen sexy movie, Bye Bye Baby, that its distributor was also dumping into a dollar house as a first run feature. The 80s were a very weird time. Suffice to say, Domino was not a hit film and Brigitte Nielsen's career was not boosted by its release. Number four was Frank Zuniga's Fist Fighter. Now, stop me, oh, 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 stop me, if you think you've heard this one before. A down-on-his-luck professional fighter named C.J. Thunderbird heads down to Bolivia after he discovers an old friend has died down there during an illegal fighting match, only to be set up by a local drug lord upon arrival and sent to a prison where he must fight a humongous cage fighter only known as the Beast in order to get out of the slammer. With the help of the drug lord's American girlfriend who just wants to get out of that life, CJ is determined to take out the Beast, the drug lord, and the guy who killed his friend. Surprisingly, this is not a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Jorge Rivero stars as CJ Thunderbird alongside Edward Albert Mike Connors, and Matthias Hughes. And maybe that's why when it opened in select markets on May 12th, it would quickly disappear with barely $221,000 in ticket sales. The fifth and final tourist movie for the summer of 1989 would be another massive stinker in the tourist entertainment library. Larry Pierce's Wired. <laughs> Nineteen eighty-two, John Belushi, the fabulous comedy star of TV's Saturday Night Live, Animal House, and The Blues Brothers, is dead at the age of thirty-three. Nineteen eighty-four, his story becomes a book by Bob Woodward, the prize-winning author of All the President's Men. You know, this could be one of those stories we've always talked about—that whole Hollywood drug scene out there. Nineteen eighty-nine, the man and the book become the motion picture that Hollywood never wanted to be made. The life. Demons loose, John. Let him loose. Boom! Oh my God, I just pushed the star of my movie. The laughter. You scratch my hiney, I'll scratch your hiney, your hiney. The loves. Please, 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 uh, I'm, I'll even marry you. The incredible times. I use drugs to keep myself alert to the comic possibilities in everything around me. The truth. Belushi told people that drugs were built into his contract. It's accidental. What is this, a Saturday Night Live routine? I'm so mad. I'm so 
You were a living legend, John. Your friend Aykroyd called you America's guest. Everybody loved you. Why did you shove a needle in your arm? God's got a saying. Life's not for everyone. It's not just a story about the man. It's a story about America. Wired, the laughs and times of John Belushi. Man, they weren't kidding. Hollywood really didn't want this movie to be made. Nobody from Belushi's personal life wanted this to be made. Nobody from his professional life wanted this to be made. John Landis, who had directed Belushi and Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers movie, had his lawyer contact the producers of the film. The lawyer let the producers know that any depiction of Landis or his other clients associated with Belushi who appear in the book, including Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Belushi's manager Bernie Brillstein, Belushi's agent Michael Ovitz, Universal Studios executive Sean Daniels, or Blues Brothers producer Robert Weiss, would be considered an invasion of privacy, and any attempt to inaccurately portray them in the movie would rise to other liabilities. In the end, Landis's character in the movie was simply called film director in the end credits, and never mentioned by name in the movie, while Brillstein's character would become Arnie Fromson. Only Aykroyd's name would be used in the movie. In fact, so little of Woodward's book would be used in the movie that the final film would essentially be two different short movies intertwined with each other. One where Belushi takes a taxi through a greatest hits look back at his life as he travels to heaven. The other, about a famous journalist named Bob Woodward, who is writing a book about the recently deceased comedic actor. The filmmakers would have great trouble finding an actor who could accurately portray Belushi and be willing to play Belushi. No major actor wanted to do the role, and they would hire the then 25-year-old Michael Chiklis, who would be making his feature debut, to play Belushi. And they would have trouble casting a name actor to play Bob Woodward, so they would have to cast J.T. Walsh, who at the time was a little-known actor who had made small waves in small roles in such films as Hannah and Her Sisters, Tin Men, and Good Morning Vietnam. For Walsh, this would represent his first of only a handful of leading roles before his untimely passing in 1998. Most of the other actors were decent actors, like Lucinda Jenny, Patty D'Arbonville, and Alex Rocco, who weren't given as much work as they had been receiving five or ten years earlier. The $9 million movie began production at the Culver Studios in Culver City, just down the block from the famed MGM Studios lot in May 1988, and would finish shooting in late July after spending a week on location in Mendocino County in Northern California. The film was originally supposed to be released by New Visions, an upstart distribution company which included Taylor Hackford, the director of An Officer and a Gentleman, Against All Odds and White Knights as a partner. But after seeing the final film, they decided it was something that they creatively did not want to handle. The producers then made a deal with Atlantic Releasing, who would release such films as Night of the Comet, Teen Wolf, and the Garbage Pail Kids movie, to release the movie on August 18, 1989, but that deal would get canceled 
when Atlantic ran out of money and could not afford to release it. In late June 1989, the producers would make a deal with Taurus to release the film on August 25th, which they did in what was for them the widest release to date, 680 theaters nationwide. Taurus could afford to go this wide because they weren't actually paying for the prints or for the advertising. A video company called IVE contributed $5 million to the theatrical release in the hopes that the film would be a hit, which would then fuel sales of the videotape they would be releasing once it came out. The opening weekend gross for the film from those 680 theaters was $681,054, and it would be completely gone from those 680 theaters within a month, with a final gross of just $1.089 million. Taurus would get their distribution fee, while IVE would take a considerable loss on their investment when they needed to sell their home video rights for Wired to MCA Home Video, the video distribution arm for Universal Pictures at the time. But here's the funny thing about the movie. While it is a bad movie, many critics didn't completely eviscerate it as you would have expected them to. Gene Siskel and Robert Gerebert didn't destroy it. When Siskel suggested Chiklis and Gary Grooms, who plays Aykroyd, weren't actually all that bad in their impersonations, Ebert would agree, albeit with the caveat that they were doing the best they could with what they were given. Ebert would then point out that a filmmaker like Bob Fosse could have possibly made a very good movie out of the subject. Chiklis occasionally looks and sounds like Belushi, and it's now off-putting to see Chiklis with a full head of hair and any viewing of Walsh and how good he was in any role he played is a painful reminder of the excellence we lost too soon. And Arbenville was actually really good as Kathy Smith, the woman who injected the fatal speedball shot into Belushi in her one scene towards the end of the film. But clearly audiences did not want any kind of filmed entertainment about one of their favorite performers just seven years after his passing. Chiklis would eventually become known for his work on The Shield and in the Fantastic Four movies, but there was a time when his burgeoning career looked like it was over as soon as it started. Our next film, Jim Sotos's Beverly Hills Brat, was the brainchild of actress Terry Moore, who had a fleeting moment of fame in the late 40s and early 50s, including receiving an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress in the 1952 Burt Lancaster drama, Come Back Little Sheba, who got a secondary fleeting moment of fame in the 80s by posing nude in the pages of Playboy at the age of 55 and for receiving an undisclosed settlement from the estate of Howard Hughes after claiming she and the reclusive billionaire had been married off the coast of Mexico in 1949 and never divorced. So what would she do with all that Hughes money? She would make a movie that she would write the story for, produce, and star in. Peter Billingsley, six years out from the role that made him momentarily famous in 1983, Ralphie from A Christmas Story, plays Scooter, a rich young boy from the 90210, who arranges to have himself kidnapped in order to get some attention from his parents. Martin Sheen and Miss Moore star as Scooter's plastic surgeon dad and stereotypical Beverly Hills spendaholic mom, 
and Burt Young as the man Scooter ropes into kidnapping him. The film also features Natalie Schaefer from Gilligan's Island, Joe Santos, Whoopi Goldberg as herself, and introducing Ramon Sheen. Earlier in 1989, the Weintraub Entertainment Group failed at the box office with the Shelley Long starring Troop Beverly Hills, but even that one would be considered a hit in comparison to Beverly Hills Brat. Opening in 41 theaters in Los Angeles on October 6th, the film would disappear from screens after just three weeks and a gross of $192,000. The final Taurus Entertainment release of 1989 would not be a hit movie in theaters, but it would become a cult smash on home video and through repeated showings on cable, leading to three sequels. We're talking about Robert Radler's Best of the Best. Eric Roberts would star as Alex, a one-time rising star in the martial arts world, who was selected to represent the United States in an international tournament after being forced into retirement years earlier due to a shoulder injury. Philip Ree would play Tommy, a highly skilled martial arts instructor. Chris Penn as Travis, an assertive fighter who is quick to anger at the slightest perceived provocation. John Dye as Virgil, a devout Buddhist fighter, and David Agresta as Sonny, a streetwise brawler. James Earl Jones plays their coach, and the film also features Academy Award winner Louise Fletcher, Academy Award nominee Sally Kirkland, beloved character actor John P. Ryan, and former NFL player turned sports broadcaster Ahmad Rashad. The movie would come about thanks to Ree a competitive Taekwondo fighter who had opened up a chain of karate studios in Southern California after his fighting days were done. One of his students would be producer Peter Strauss, but not the actor Peter Strauss who was famous for starring in Rich Man, Poor Man and Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, mind you. This Peter Strauss had produced a number of films, including Skate Town USA in the late 70s, and was one of Ree's students at his flagship studio on the west side of Los Angeles. Ree would pitch Strauss an idea for a movie, and within a couple of years, the $6.5 million film would shoot mostly in Los Angeles between mid-February and early April of 1989, with some location shooting in Seoul, South Korea, for some authenticity on screen. Taurus would once again go big on a movie they expected to become a hit, and there would be a logic behind their decision. Martial arts was starting to make a comeback in 1989, and earlier in the year, John Cusack's character in Say Anything, Lloyd Dobler, was training to be a mixed martial artist, which would become the entry point into the sport for a number of young men and women. Taurus would release the movie in 600 theaters nationwide on November 10th, but the film could only manage to gross $990,000 in those first three days. It would drop half of its theaters at the end of its first week, and it would disappear from theaters after only eight weeks and $1.7 million in ticket sales. But like I said a moment ago, the film would find its audience when it was released on home video and on cable. It would be successful enough where the production company of the film was able to raise $7 million to make a sequel, bringing Radler back as director, and Roberts, Ree, and Penn would also return as well. The sequel would get released by 20th Century Fox in 1993, and like the first film, would not gross enough in theaters to cover its production cost, 
but would find its audience again at home. And once again, the producers would be able to use the home video sales as a way of getting financing for a third movie in the series, subtitled No Turning Back. Ree would not only star in the movie, but would take over for Radler in the director's chair. And while Best of the Best 3 would be released directly to video in May of 1995, it would also be successful enough to warrant a fourth movie, 1998's Without Warning, which would star, be co-written, co-produced, and directed by Ree. It, too, would be released directly to video. There has yet to be a Best of the Best 5, but Ree is trying to get a reboot of the series off the ground. As the 1990s began, Taurus Entertainment would start to slow down their distribution output because it's hard to put out more movies when your company has so little money coming back in. Their only profitable release after two years had been wired because they didn't have to come up with any of the money to release it. They would need to be more selective about the films they released. The first film of the new decade was one that they hoped would reverse their fortunes. Toby Hooper's Spontaneous Combustion, the director's first movie in four years. The sci-fi horror film, featuring Brad Dorff as a man who discovers he has special powers when he learns his parents had been used in an atomic weapons testing experiment while his mom was pregnant with him. The film would open in 50 theaters on February 23, 1990, and would only gross $50,000 during its first three days. Taurus would stop tracking the film after that. But that wouldn't be the only movie Taurus released that day. Eric Carson's Angel Town would feature French action star Olivier Grunier as a graduate student and martial arts expert who rents a room from Teresa Saldana's single mother and finds himself going up against a local street gang who is trying to recruit her teenage son. The film would open on 55 screens, 40 of them in the Los Angeles area where it was filmed, and it would gross a cool $300,000 in its first weekend. But the local film would end up being a local hit. People outside of Southern California didn't seem to care about the film, and it would be gone from theaters after a month with only $856,000 in ticket sales. The third and final picture from their Corsair Pictures arm, the Michael Caine-led thriller A Shock to the System, would arrive in theaters on March 23, 1990. Years later, Kane would tell Venice Magazine that he still thought it was a lovely little film that would have done much better as an HBO film. But its $3.4 million gross would be amongst Taurus's best-performing films. And it has a pretty good supporting cast, too, led by Peter Riegert, Elizabeth McGovern, Swoozie Kurtz, and Will Patton. One film that would not be amongst Taurus's best earners was Rick Class's romantic comedy Elliot Fowman, Ph.D. A psychology professor studying the lives and personalities of prostitutes decides he wants to do his next paper on one lady of the night, unaware that his perfect subject is really a famous actress who is doing her own research for an upcoming role. Also released on March 23rd, Elliot Fowman, Ph.D. would perform so poorly Taurus would not even release any numbers from the film. They would, however, report numbers for David O'Dell's sci-fi comedy Martians Go Home. 
Randy Quaid plays a songwriter who accidentally brings forth an alien invasion to Earth. The film had a good supporting cast, including Margaret Collin from Three Men and a Baby, Robocop's Ronnie Cox, Garrett Graham from Used Cars and The Phantom of the Paradise, and Anita Morris, so memorable from her role in Ruthless People. But audiences seem to have only wanted one Martian invasion comedy at a time, and Disney would release Patrick Reed Johnson's Martian invasion comedy Space Invaders the following week. Martian Skull Home would only gross $129,000 from 155 theaters the one weekend tourists would track it, April 20th through 22nd, while Space Invaders would gross nearly $4.5 million from 1,821 screens in its first weekend, April 27th through 29th. On our first episode of the series, we discussed Mark L. Lester's 1982 cult hit, Class of 1984. Eight years later, Lester would revisit the concept of high school students gone bad. But instead of re-upping the bad punks on a rampage aspect of the first film, which played into the fears of parents in 1982, Lester would play up the berserk robots on a rampage aspect, as three ex-military robots are reprogrammed to become teachers at an inner-city high school where most of the students are aligned with one of several organized local gangs. And what could possibly go wrong reprogramming military robots to become teachers? Despite the inclusion of such icons as Pam Greer, Stacey Keach, Malcolm McDowell, and John P. Ryan in the cast, audiences didn't return to class the second time around. Opening on 320 screens nationwide on May 11th, the $5.2 million film would only gross $767,000 in its first three days and would finish up a two-month run with $2.46 million in ticket sales. Bill Pollard's Old Explorers brought Jose Ferrar and James Whitmore together to play two senior citizens who entertain themselves with imaginary adventures featuring fictionalized versions of themselves within real-life adventures. Shot mainly at Prince's Paisley Park Studios just outside Minneapolis, the film would only open on a handful of screens in Minnesota on September 28th and would quickly disappear from theaters with no reported grosses. There would be one final theatrical release for Taurus, but that would not be John Carl Beckler's Ghoulies Go to College, the third part of the Ghoulies cinematic universe and the first Ghoulies film to not be produced by Charles Band or Empire Pictures. I'm not saying it's a bad movie only because I've never seen it, but it would also be the first Ghoulies movie to be released direct-to-video, which is rarely a sign of quality when it comes to these type of films. The final theatrical release from Taurus Entertainment would be the fifth and final film they would do with George A. Romero. Two Evil Eyes, was two short horror films, one directed by Romero and one directed by the great Dario Argento. Each director would adapt an Edgar Allan Poe story, which was left often adapted to the screen. Romero's The Facts in the Case of Mr. Valdemar would feature Adrian Barbeau, Romero's Creepshow co-star E.G. Marshall, and Tom Atkins, while Argento's The Black Cat would star Harvey Keitel, John Amos, Kim Hunter, and Martin Balsam, as well as the first credit for future Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel co-star Julie Benz. 
opening the film on 150 screens nationwide, including 69 theaters in Los Angeles and 67 screens in New York City on October 25, 1991, Torres would see the film gross a not very impressive $260,000. After a second weekend that would bring that total to just under $350,000, Torres would stop tracking the movie, and they would never release another film. The concept of a movie exhibitor owning and operating a movie distribution company would not end with UFDC and Taurus. In fact, it would be Regal Entertainment Group, who purchased United Artists Theatres in the late 1990s, who would team with exhibition rival AMC Entertainment to create Open Road Films in 2011. Open Road would be a bit more successful than UFDC or Taurus, in large part because Open Road was operated independently of either Regal or AMC, and were more properly funded. Some of the movies that would be made and released by Open Road would include Chef, Dope, A Haunted House 1 and 2, Machete Kills, Nightcrawler, The Nut Job 1 and 2, and Spotlight, the winner of the 2015 Academy Award for Best Picture of the Year. But despite the fact that Taurus Entertainment hasn't released a movie in 30 years, they are still very much in business, and they're still being operated by the Doodleson family. But today, they are pretty much exclusively a holding company with only a couple of assets of any value. If you remember back on the first episode of this series, I mentioned that they had made Creepshow with George A. Romero and then sold the distribution rights to the movie to Warner Brothers. What they did not sell was the ownership of the Creepshow copyright. So while they would not be involved with the making of 1987's Creepshow 2, they would have total control of the property after that. It would be Taurus, which is now operated as a subsidiary of another holding company called Blairwood Entertainment, who would produce the god-awful Creepshow 3, co-directed by Doodleson family member James Doodleson and his wife Anna Clavel, and it would be Taurus who would license the Creepshow name to Shutter TV for the currently running Creepshow series, as well as an aborted Creepshow web series that ran for a single eight-minute episode in 2009 directed by Wilder Valderrama and starring Michael Madsen. Blairwood, through Taurus, also owns the rights to Kentucky Fried Movie, The Jigsaw Man, Cue the Winged Serpent, Night Riders, and Day of the Dead. If you want to know what hardcore horror fans think of Taurus Entertainment, Go ahead and Google Taurus Entertainment and either Creepshow or Day of the Dead. They are not afraid to tell you what they think, and it is not pretty. And with that, I thank you for indulging me with this very long episode. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.